I think in some cases, bootstrappers make the mistake then of deciding, well, I'm not going to do it at all. And then they end up with basically a stagnating business. One of the main mistakes you can do in terms of M&A is to wait and just let your business stagnate because it really hurts the value of the asset that you have. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy, we're back. Today, uh, you might only sell your business for life-changing money one time in your life, but today's guest has seen it go down multiple, multiple times, is incredibly frank about it. So today, he's dropped by to share five things that founders often misunderstand about exiting their business. Now, many of you know I wrote a book. It's free. You can send me an email. I will send you my book about exiting a business. But I did it one time, eh, a couple of smaller little times. We don't call those exits. We call them sales. I call them a sale. And exits when it's like life-changing and like getting married or buying a house or whatever. You don't, may, might not do it that many times. So it's good to have somebody where you can get some perspective. Today's guest is going to drop by to give us some perspective. Honestly, it's one of my favorite conversations of the year. I think you're really going to enjoy it. A couple little updates here at the top. If you hear a little extra confidence in my voice, it's because you're listening to a founder who knows where every dollar in his business is. I mentioned this like, this kind of news update in our business because so many of you emailed me that, that you enjoyed that segment. The fact that, hey, we really have a financial problem here. What we're starting the process is, is bringing that in-house. Our bookkeeping agency was just not to the level that we needed. And for everybody, that's going to be different. Like what you need in terms of financial intelligence in your business. For us, we just reached that breaking point where it's like, hey, we need to know every dollar, every month we need to have a monthly business review. We're analyzing key financial data points and really understanding how it can empower us. So this will be a theme over the summer here on the show. Well, not only are we figuring out every single dollar in this increasingly complex business, but then figuring out how to budget and project things that I find extremely, extremely powering. How much money can we spend on this business? Or what if we plug in different assumptions, what does it look like? When's the next point in time that we hire for this business? These are all things that we're aiming to really explore for our business this summer. I'll be sharing that message with you. Speaking of this summer, this microphone right here, the one I'm tapping on is going directly into my backpack after I, I finish this episode. We are flying to Europe to meet so many of you, to get away from the Austin heat, to go to a, a slew of DC events and meetups this summer. And we're taking you guys along with us putting on an episode every Thursday. If you'd like to weigh in on the topics that we cover, shoot me an email. They really do inspire and help to act as many votes, the sorts of topics and guests that we cover here at TMBA. All right, so today, as I mentioned at the top, today's topic is exiting your business intelligently and making it life-changing in a positive way. Today's guest is an expert at just that. His name is Anar Volset. And uh, by way of biography, Ian describes him as, quote, someone who is very, very cool. <laughs> That's true. I mean, he doesn't say that often. So I thought I'd, I'd mention that at the top. That's 
of course, the crowning achievement of his resume, uh, but also was a professor of computer science at Cornell University. Quickly thereafter, Anar moved to the West Coast, where he founded a startup that was part of the first YC class or Y Combinator class in 2009, along with Airbnb. It's a very famous class. We're going to hear some stories from that. It was around that time when his first company, when that startup was acquired, that he started to realize it was going to be a big market for B2B SaaS companies. He wanted to get involved. He did that vis-a-vis a sell-side advisory M&A firm. So he helps people sell for life-changing money. The brand of that firm is called Discretion Capital. A lot of the wisdom and war stories and lessons from today's episode be shared from that company. Around that time, Anar started attending MicroConf, where he met Rob Walling and where he got exposed to the other side of the fence. So originally, you know, sort of on the startup side of things. And now he's starting to see the value of the bootstrapper side of things. And one of the topics we get into it here is like when your view is too polarized towards one side or the other, sometimes you can have blind spots and that can prevent you from having the best exit possible. So today I challenge Anar to bring us five things that founders often misunderstand about exiting their business. And just as a little background, Anar is also the co-founder and a GP at Tiny Seed. I just want to bring that up for some context. So he's done a ton and I really enjoyed this conversation. Actually, we're going to pick it up with an anecdote about his time in YC in 2009. This is at a time when, I kid you not, he turned down the job of being the first employee at Airbnb. So sometimes... (laughs) Being a startup founder can blind you. <laughs> that would have been a good entrepreneurial move. Anyway, we're going to start with that recounting. It's wild. Let's roll the conversation. We went through YC, went to 2009, very different environment than it was, it is now. Like it was like, I think it was like 16, 17 companies, something like that in our batch. You know, Paul, Paul Gray and PG was they are actually making the chilies on the Tuesdays and, and things like that. But for me, it was ideal because like, I had zero network in the commercial startup world, really. I was, I was an academic, basically. And it gave me an instant network and instant credibility, which obviously even, I mean, at the time, it wasn't as prestigious as it is now, but certainly, you know, it was, it was a big deal. And, you know, for us, it was great. For me in particular, it was really good. I actually went through, I don't know if you know this, I went through the same batch as Airbnb. So they went through and uh, everyone now, this is the most mind-blowing thing to me is probably why Tiny Seed exists. You know, I, I talk to these kids now who are like kids, they're like 20s. And they're like, oh, I can't possibly do anything unless I raise $2 million like for a pre-seed before I even build anything. And like, you know, Airbnb, they had their, they didn't do demo day on, at YC because they'd raised their Series A. And their Series A was like $600,000 on a $3.2 million from Sequoia. They, re- they later rebranded it as like a seed. But at the time, that was like a big round. Everyone was like, oh my God, you guys raised $600,000. That's amazing. So it was a very different environment at the time. You know, it was just post-housing crash and all that stuff. Did you guys all know about Airbnb? Did you see it at the, at the lunch table? Yeah, we figured it out. I mean, like, so... They do this like, you do demo day, you get two minutes or whatever it is. Maybe it's one minute now. But you do practice sessions running up to it. And so they also make you like rank your favorites. Like you get to pick the top three and then they can figure out. And everybody pretty much picked Airbnb as their favorite. Um, So everybody was like, yeah, this is a good idea. 
this is a genius idea. We should have done this. I actually, I don't know if you know this too. I actually dodged the wealth bullet by not becoming Airbnb's employee number one. So, so I did, uh, you know, like I said, it was like the Tuesday dinners, right? I'm walking <laughs> over to Brian Chesky, you know, the CEO. And uh, we were doing, uh, Remail was an, an email client for the iPhone. So we were working on the iPhone. What was the outcome of Remail? Could you let us, let us know what the outcome was for Remail? Yeah, that's, for sold, that's sold to Google in 2010. And what kind of money was that for you? Was that like almost nothing? It was like an acquihire mostly of my, of my co-founder at the time. Acquihires, it hadn't yet gotten to the point where like acquihires was like enough to make you several million bucks. Like it just wasn't like that in 2010 when the acquisition. But anyway, so we go, we go on around, we're out there on this Tuesday dinners. And I go over to Brian and I'm like, you guys should have an iPhone app. And he's like, why? He goes, tell me why. And I go, well, you know, like it has a built-in GPS. You can, I mean, it seems obvious now, but it wasn't at the time. And he's like, okay, we should have open it up. And you just push the button and he can show you where you can book. And you arrive at an airport, you can, you know, book it. And he was like, you know, that's a really good idea. Do you want to come and, and build that for us? And I was like, nah. So here's the thing. I told you I fell into doing M&A. So that slight precursor to that was I did due diligence work for more traditional private equity guys. And I told that story once when we, I was at the bar with this private equity principal. And he's like, he thought it was hilarious. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm going to work out how much money like you lost by turning that down. I was like, it's, it's fine. Don't bother about it. And so we go out the next day, we're having like, we're going into the board meeting to do the, you know, management meetings and all that crap, all the due diligence stuff. We come in and the guy just before we're about to go in, he turns to me and he says, you know, I think conservatively two to $300 million. I was like, oh, gee, thanks. I didn't need to know that. That wasn't necessary, <laughs> but thank you so much. <laughs> Coming from um, the Bay Area and, uh, and uh, as a YC alum, what was it that resonated with you about the bootstrapped space? And did you think of it that way at the time? Like when you bought that first ticket to MicroConf and started, we at the time thought of it as very oppositional, like coming across the aisle. Is that the way you saw it or did you see it as more of a continuum? I thought of it very much as, a, as an oppositional thing. Because once I left... 2010, Google sold. I wasn't a big part of that acquisition. I didn't make a lot of money. I got, you know, at the time, 2010, 11, 12, like mobile was a huge thing. I did a bunch of prototypes for uh, mostly startups and YC companies in the, in the iPhone space. That's how I made money, basically. And also, like, there was a lot of crap that got built. And like, I got several good friends of mine being like, you, you should just put there and build a mobile social app and you'll get acquired by AOL or whatever. And although probably true, I was always like, it sort of how harked back to like my years at Cornell. Like, it was like, does that a sign? But like, is that really what I want to do with my life? So really, I think it was it was really Rob who first like articulated this notion that you don't have to be a Zuckerberg. You can, you know, you <laughs> if you build a company to a couple of million, five million in revenue, that's life changing money right there. And so that really resonated with me, where it was like. I could have control. I could build something that I cared about. Like I could make enough money on that. Like, you know, basically it was the independence and the freedom that, that I really wanted from it rather than, you know, what I saw in some startups, which was you raise too much money, you basically come beholden to the investors and you get boxed into a certain kind of outcome and how you have to play the game in a certain way, raise money every 18 months. I do think there's, for many bootstrappers that are struggling with that scale phase and trying to, get past the million into the kind of five and tens and stuff. Yeah. I think when you're struggling through those years, a lot of people say, man, I should have just gone to San Francisco. And <laughs> it, this is kind of this 
world that we didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I and get so that. I'm wondering, like, is there something you got wrong? So there's a couple of different things that I think some bootstrappers do wrong. Some are like bootstrap extremists. They're just like, there's a purity of owning all the things themselves, including not sharing any equity with any employees and stuff that I think is det- detrimental. But that's a, probably a small minority of people. There's sometimes, again, a little bit of a fervor against taking money. It might make sense to bootstrap to a million or two, but maybe at that point, like you realize, okay, to take the next step to go from 2 million to 10 million in revenue, there might be something that, you know, I'm not going to get to just doing more of what it is that I'm currently doing. Like it may be a phase change in terms of the kind of organization that I need to build. And that might not be something that I want to do. I think in some cases, bootstrappers make the mistake then of deciding, well, I'm not going to do it at all. And then they end up with basically a stagnating business. One of the main mistakes you can do in terms of M&A is to wait and just let your business stagnate because it really hurts the value of, of the asset that you have. I think in some cases, bootstrappers have chosen the bootstrapping route because they're risk averse in some way. And that occasionally translates into like a lack of ability to take action and take the risk that you need to take. They want to de-risk everything which is impossible, basically. If you had to conjecture based on what you see in your portfolio, what are some key moments that we might be too cute with? Yeah, I think two things. One is like an unwillingness to hire early on and not have help. Like if you have, a, if you're growing fast and you have two guys, and we had this multiple times, Tony said, where you have people, it's working really well. Like it could be, you know, million in revenue, two million in revenue, growing like crazy. And they haven't hired a single person. It's just two co-founders doing everything. They're doing customer support. They're doing, you know, DevOps. They're doing all the things themselves. And they feel like, isn't this amazing? Look, look at the amazing profit margin we have because we do everything ourselves. And I'm like, (laughs) that's really stupid because you're going to burn out. Or, you know, something's going to fall apart. And then someone gets hit by a bus. Or fundamentally, if you then try to sell it, a buyer is going to look at that. Like some people think, that, oh, the more profitable, the better. Like, you, you look, I can run it with just one person, me. And I'm like, no, most buyers, once you get up above smallish size, they want an experienced team in there. They don't want to think that you have to be a superhero to run the business. So that's probably the main thing early on, like a reluctance to hire, even like a VA or even like a typically a customer support or a VA tends to be the first hire. Or like, letting go of the reins of all the entire software base tends to be an issue for people. Like we back mostly technical founders and it it can be hard for the technical founder to be like, yeah, I should hire somebody to to add more features to do more things. I just can't like, then I'll have to manage those people or it'll take longer or I, I won't have control. Like that tends to be a hurdle for people. And then probably the next biggest one is once you get to, I would say somewhere between million two three million you often end up a scenario where i think and i certainly think that's true for like you end up doing vertical SaaS, like a lot of the founders we back vertical SaaS would be like okay horizontal SaaS is something that can work across industries so think like e-signature software lots of different industries need that vertical SaaS is like dental software like software to run dental offices is very specific to that niche vertical and so basically those coming companies, they get to a certain size and then they realize, okay, I've done self-serve. That's worked really well. Now, in order to go from one or two or three million 
to take the next step up in growth, I need probably need to build out a sales organization and really step up and start doing enterprise level sales. They may know something they want to do. It may not be something that they think they're good at. And that, that may be true, but that combined with like this reluctance to hire sometimes mean that those necessary steps don't, to get to the next level don't get taken. It's like they'll keep growing, but all growth decays, basically. Like the, on the average, like if you have 100% growth this year, you're going to have 85% growth next year and 85% of growth of that the year after that. So, you know, all growth decays. And if you're not continuously adding new either products or growth channels or uh, niches you go into, your company will sort of stagnate and decay in growth until eventually it's just a, a steady state. And hopefully, depending on your churn, it might be decaying. If I bring to you like a small B2B SaaS company that say builds dental software and we're at like $1 million ARR, what are the ways that that founder might start to think about how much that company is worth? Once you get past a million, it's certainly two. Typically, B2B SaaS businesses, they sell on multiple ARR that's dominated by growth. So usually you're getting a growth, on a, a multiple on ARR that's dependent upon what's your year-over-year growth. So, and that can vary from if you're not growing, if you're stagnant, basically, but then, you know, typically you'd struggle to get two times ARR. That would be a good deal at that point. But if you're growing 100% or more, you might get seven, eight, nine. We've done deals at 10 times ARR. So it really depends on growth. Now, there are other metrics too that come into it. And actually on the, on the website, I go through in or ranked order what's the most important. I think growth is definitely one. Obviously, ARR is, is one as well. Like I said, if you have a 500,000 ARR business growing, say, 50%, then you have a 5 million ARR business growing the same 50%. That 5 million ARR business is going to fetch a higher multiple, even though the growth is the same, just because it's a bigger business. And a bigger business is worth more. Just just is. And there's other things too, like, you know, what's your net revenue retention and things like that, that particularly private equity looks at, you know, very seriously. And in terms of your firm, what's it look like? Like, you're not in an office right now. So what's the team and how do you guys like manage your clients and what's the workflow for doing deals like this? And maybe you could help us know like volume valuations plus the timeframe for doing deals. Yeah. So we're basically three people who work on it. Me, Scott, and Dan, basically. And uh, we do about anywhere from six to 10 deals a year. What we're really, really good at, probably I would say world-class, is that two to 10 million ARR. And it is selling to tuck-ins, what are called tuck-ins, to to larger private equity firms. So what I mean by that is, so if you have the big boys, Inside Partners, Axel, KKR, whatever, they're typically not going to do a standalone deal. They're not going to buy a software firm that's doing 5 million in revenue. That's just too small for them. Like they will buy a business that's doing 25 million or 50 or 100 million in ARR, but they're not going to buy, you know, your own SaaS business as a standalone for 5 million. But if they already have a portfolio company that is where it's potentially a fit, they will definitely buy, add that functionality of that customer base to their existing portfolio. So again, like keep in mind, my background Hmm. is PhD in computer science. So what I started doing this was actually tracking. Like we wrote up, we still have a bunch of crawlers that keep track of you know, there's a thousand plus private equity software buyers in the world. We keep track of all their portfolios, what they own, when they bought it, you know, what those things do. And so when someone comes to us, we can basically say, okay, well, this is the company. Where does it fit? Like whose portfolio would this potentially be a fit with? And we include that in the outreach when we run the, when we run the process. And so 
we're a little unusual too in that, and, and this is probably just how we started. Like most bankers will take basically like a, some sort of retainer that's not refundable, and then some sort of a success fee, like a percentage of the sale at the end. For the historical reasons, really, we only take a success fee. And so because of that, we have a pretty high close rate because we really only take deals where we feel like we're going to get multiple offers in the range where we think you'll transact. Is that because you guys are relatively wealthy or don't have a large back office or what's the historical reason? Yeah, when it was started, it was just me and I didn't realize you could take a retainer as well. So now I'm also like, listen, like we, <laughs> we know what we're doing. And also, I think like, you know, lines people, I do know that in some cases, like particularly if you're growing reasonably well, a banker will sell like, hey, I can definitely sell you for 25 million when they know in their heart of hearts, if they go to market now, they're not going to sell for 25 million. But what do they do? They take yeah. the retainer and they get paid 60, 70, $80,000. They slow roll it until it grows for 18, 19 months, you know, 12 months, and then go to market. And then lo and behold, they get the valuation, which I think is bullshit. So I think it further just aligns us. It's like, listen, if you don't get an, an offer you're going to take, I don't get paid. So that's the story. How often do your founders, like with the success fee stuff, it's a common situation, at least in agency e-com where that success fee becomes part of the final deal where like we're trying to now negotiate away your success fee as a way to get the deal through. How never often happens. does that happen? How do you, did you never have, how so? Because <laughs> you guys aren't, the, you guys aren't the low rent district. <laughs> no, we don't do it. I mean, like, you know, most of our deal sizes are, I would say, run from 20 to 50 million revenue. It's at 20 to 50 million in exit size. That's typically for us. We have, you know, basically an agreement and we get, us and the lawyers, we get paid at close. So it's, and realistically, that most of the time people are making 20, 30, 40, 50 million each per founder in yeah. some cases. And they're just stoked that we got them 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, 300% more than they thought they were going to get. Yeah, no sh. That sounds awful. <laughs> well, let's run through these five things. So one of the things yeah. I, I love too, I thought it was really nice how you, on your website, you market, you know, a range, but there's actually a sweet spot in there. And that sweet spot is really our listenership. And so we've challenged you today to come up with, you know, it's always this concept where you get married, hopefully once, maybe twice, but you're really going out there watching all these people get married. And so Correct. I'm hoping you can identify some patterns some mistakes we could be making, things that founders misunderstand about the process that you've seen go down many, many times. So sure. we've got a great list here in reverse order. Uh, the first yeah, one is it. investment valuations do not equal exit valuations. Correct. So a good example is like TinySeed. Like TinySeed, we invest at one to three million pre-money valuation. But we invest in companies that are doing as low as like 500 in you know, revenue per month in MRR. Would somebody, would you pay a million dollars for a SaaS company doing 500 in MRR? No, that doesn't make any sense. So obviously we're, it's pretty obvious, but then again, no smart person is going to take a revenue multiple of at 500 MRR as an investment, because then they, you know, if they wanted to raise 50 grand, they'd sell, you know, three quarters of their company, which again, doesn't make any sense. So exit valuation is basically a snapshot in time. What is the value of the company right now? Versus investment valuations is more like, I'm going to give you money now, you're going to use that money, and you're going to keep working on your business for several years, maybe decades. 
And that's roughly where, that's how I'm valuing your company. It's more of a, in the future, this will be worth more valuation because you're expecting it to grow. When you're doing an exit, fundamentally, you're doing an exit. That's the end of it. Like you're capturing the value at this moment versus investment valuations aren't. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's surprising to me how, how often this comes up. Like people have, you know, they raised money at 17 million or whatever. Uh, you know, they didn't have very much. They maybe even the pre-revenue at that point. They raised 15 million in, you know, pre-money. And, you know, they've been going for a year and now they're doing half a million in revenue. They come to us and they think, no, we should be, we're fine to sell for 15 million. And I'm like, I'm sure you are, but you're not worth anywhere near 15 million. Um, So that's, you know, I'm sorry to bring it to you, but, you know, at least I'm not going to lie to you and pretend like, you know, and just take your deposit or your retainer and and like run you through a process that you're not going to get any good offers. I'm just going to tell you that's never going to work. So that's probably like, it's not super common, but it's pretty reasonably common that people think, oh, yeah, if I raise at 5 million, I must be worth 5 million or more. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not how that works. Got you. Number four, an inbound offer is never the best offer. That's true. This isn't surprising if you ask people like, hey, do you think that the person who cold emails you, like that dude's going to give you the best possible price for your business? Most people will say, no, obviously not. But it's still, people still act as if it is. And fundamentally, I think the reason there is, what ends up happening is people get cold inbound email from potentially brand name, private equity or whatever, or strategics. And they feel pretty flattered. Like here's, you know, this big time firm coming, talking to me about my business. And so they get on a call and it's like, you know, let's talk, let's get to know each other. Let's discuss the landscape, blah, 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 blah. And it can be a long game from the buyer side where they're basically, you know, making friendly conversation and checking in or every now and again, and then basically saying, hey, you know, we think this makes sense and like, let's make you an offer. And a lot of people, you know, they like to deal with people they like. And so they don't really want to quote unquote upset the person by, you know, bringing in a banker or, you know, going out and doing a competitive process. But that's usually a mistake. And that's basically why all these private equity firms spend so much resources on outbound because they know it works. They know if you can get a founder to like you and spend time with you and you can build a relationship with them, then you can probably get a deal done in some cases without any competitive pressure at all, where you get to dictate as a buyer to the seller, no, no, this is standard. You know, this is the valuation. We can maybe stretch on this, blah, 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 blah. But fundamentally, a lot of the time, you end up with outcomes that are extremely subpar. Like it's, it's not unusual that I talk to founders who have sold in this way and they tell me what they got. And I say, congratulations, that's great. And in my head, I think you got caught. Basically, like you probably one, two, three, in some cases, I've said, oh, great, congratulations. When I thought in my head, you left two X on the table because you got basically taken. Isn't a little bit of that non-competitive situation baked into a lot of brokerage processes um, with like long LOIs and people trying to be nice to their list? I'm not always convinced that certain brokerages are incentivized to maximize sale value. So I think that depends. You have to look very closely at like what's, what are the incentives of your broker or your, your banker? Most of the time, if they're getting paid most, they get paid the more they get for you, then the incentives are aligned and you can be reasonably sure that, that you are getting 
the best you could possibly get. Because that's the job for the banker. Like, what, what is he doing if not that? But, I mean, there are some brokers out there who are not good. And there are some brokers there who buy for their own account, which I think is peculiar. But yeah, certainly, certainly I'm sure it happens. Number three, being a super lean team is bad. Okay, man, I listen to podcasts. Podcasts suggest yeah. that being lean is the new, is the coolest thing in town right now. What do you mean by this? Part of me thinks like these PE firms, like do they even care how many people work at these companies? Are they not just looking at, at the P&L at the end of the day? Or I remember no. when we sold our company, we had all these cool things. And do they even care how many people work for this company? They definitely care how many people work for the company. And then this race back to what we were talking about before. Like what they don't want to do is buy like uh, an organization that's sort of like duct taped together, that's super profitable. But like, what are they worried about as a buyer? They need to de-risk the notion that the entire business is built around you and your superhuman strength. And if you then walk out the door six or 12 months later, the whole business falls apart. That's what they really want to avoid. And so it sort of relates to this notion that the mistake that some bootstrappers do is not hiring early enough. This is similar. This is like one of the outcomes that why this is bad. It's because it's not a robust enough organization to buy from a serious buyer. Now, like if you are sub a million, if you're doing 500,000 or whatever, and it's an individual buying it, they might be very good because they can think to themselves, well, this is being run by one person. I'm one person. I'm sure I can pick this up. This is great. But then you're talking, you know, smaller deals. For if you're being bought by KKR, then they're going to be extremely worried that when they buy you and you decide, I'm going to quit six months in, that the business doesn't fall apart. And so that's, you know, this, it, it's actually, it ends up being, and people think also, like they look at, they go, like you say, they look at the P&L and they go, look at all this profit. But if you come to them and you have a subscale team, they will discount your profit. They will look at it and be like, well, he's not paying himself enough. He's paying 50000 a year. If we need to hire a replacement for him, that's going to be $250,000. So we're going to take that out of the debit. He has one developer. He should have three. Okay, we're going to add three full-time, full-price developer salaries to this and deduct that other profit. Yeah. You're not actually winning anything. All you're doing is only dealing with flakier and smaller time buyers, basically. All right, number two, you should start a podcast. Number two, <laughs> you should sell when there's still some juice left to squeeze. Yes. This is one of the main mistakes people make. Like, keep in mind what I said about like what dominates the value of a SaaS business, the growth rate, not the ARR, the growth rate. Very, very often I talk to founders and they're like, yeah, I'm at uh, 7 million in revenue. I'm growing, you know, 25, 30% year over year. You know, I just have this like, I just want to like, I, I know there's this other channel that I really want to like maximize out the growth from. I want to get us up to like 8 million or 9 million or whatever it is. And then I'm ready to sell. And they, they've like gone out, taken all the low hanging fruit. There's no more growth left, but they sort of scrabble their way up to whatever magical number of ARR they feel they could get to. And then they want to sell. The problem with that is at that point, because your growth is now low or non-existent, you are worth less than you were when you had less ARR, but you had growth. So the curves go like this. So the value, the growth of the company might go up and to the right like this. I don't know if you can see the video, but the value of the business goes in a big hump before that. 
So by the time your growth starts decaying, but you're still growing, but your growth is slower and slower and slower and slower, the value of your business is going down, even though your ARR is going up. So what you need to be doing is selling either before that happens or fundamentally, a lot of the time, like, how do you fix this? Like, how do you add more growth? Well, you have to probably do something new. Like you have to go in, build out a new advertising channel, uh, more partnerships, add a different product feature, go into a different niche, you know, build out a different sales team, go into a different geography. Like there's a bunch of stuff there. I think it's important that founders are honest with themselves about whether they actually have, they think they'll have the energy to do that next thing before growth stalls out. And if they don't think they have that energy, then they should sell now. They shouldn't wait until the growth is stalled out and they're burnt out and try to sell that. Could you create a snapshot for us? So say we have like a business that's doing 5 million ARR. Now it's got a three-year track record and it's coming from 2.5 million versus coming from 4 million versus coming from 5 million. What are those different companies or snapshots worth? Okay, so if you're doing basically five, so say, let's just say 5 million in revenue across the board. If you're growing, it, again, it depends a little bit. And that's Lee Stonic's point. Like it depends a little bit on the market and exactly how competitive a niche you're in and also what your churn is like and all this crap. But assuming that you're doing uh, 0% growth, so you're stalled out, you're basically just stalemate, basically, you're probably worth 10 million. If you are growing, say, 50%, you're probably worth 25 million. If you're growing 100%, you are worth north of 30 million, probably, if not more. And again, other things come into it. Like, you know, what's the reasoning? Why does the market think that? Well, it plays in in part with uh, churn rate. And it basically says, what are the future values of the cash flows that are coming back, basically, to them? That's what they care about. That's why they look at churn. That's why they look at growth. If you look at, if you have no churn or very little churn, then the current value of your existing subscriptions is much higher because you'll get, keep getting paid for those for years and years and years. If you have high churn, you know, any given subscription you have is worth less because they're all going to churn out by the end of the year or year two. With growth, it's a similar thing. It's like, I'm getting more and more. Okay, you're only doing 5 million now but you'll be doing 10 million in 12 months. That's just more cash flow coming in. That means you have a marketing and a sales channel that's working and bringing in these sticky cash flow. So that's why you're worth more. And also, I mean, partly like, particularly if you're doing tuck-ins, like a lot of the stuff that we do, like you don't want a bigger company is not going to want to buy a business that is going to drag their own growth rate down. They don't want to be, if they're doing 30% mm. growth, say, Again, they're being valued on their growth. They're not going to want to buy a smaller thing that overall grabs their overall now confined growth rate down. And this also applies to profit, of course. If they have a certain profit goal in mind and they're going gunning for 20% EBITDA when they IPO or sell to the next big thing, they don't want to buy something that's just breaky because it starts hurting their EBITDA margins. That's an excellent explanation. The final most misunderstood point, save the best for last, I am confounded by it. So I can't wait to hear the answer to this, which is yeah. you might get wealthier selling for a lower multiple. <laughs> Save the best for the last. That's true. So here's a scenario, right? So say you have the business and it's doing 5 million in ARR and it's growing 40% year over year. Now, if you had that snapshot of that business in 2021, 
you would, could probably sell that business for, you would get multiple offers, I think, around seven times ARR. So uh, $35 million, right? That same business, again, let's, let's not keep in mind the time and you haven't grown, whatever. You still have exactly the same snapshot of a business. You have $5 million in ARR, growing 40% year over year, and you're trying to sell it today, probably you're going to get multiple offers at about 2x less. So you're getting $25 million instead of $35 million. Which sounds bad, and <laughs> it obviously isn't fantastic. But here's the thing. And this isn't true, actually, if you're dealing with, with smaller businesses, if you're selling something that's doing 500000 or or something like that. Most people don't blow the entirety of the proceeds of their sale in one go. Most people are not dumb. So typically what happens is, say you're making 25 or 35 million bucks you're probably going to blow $5 million on random crap. Like you'll pay, you buy your parents' house, you'll buy a Porsche, yes. you'll buy your wife's, you know, all this sort of thing. Like you buy a second home, like, you know what I mean? Like you'll just go crazy. But you're probably going to go crazy to the tune of about $5 million. Like you're going to put some money in the tiny seat because I'm twisting your arm. You know what I mean? But you still have <laughs> the majority of your money left, right? In the former case, in the 2021 case, you have $30 million left. And in the 2023 case, now you have $20 million left. What are you going to do with that money? You're going to put it in the public market, most likely. That's what most people do. They put it in some way into the market. Now, the, what is the public market doing when you're getting 7x multiple in 2021? It's super high. What is the public market doing in 2023 when you're getting 5x? It's much lower. So if you, I mean, I did this math with on the website. If you want the exposure to it, then it's like, listen, like, so a good example of what you can do is buy BVP Cloud Index, which is basically publicly traded ETF of all the, uh, of, of a lot of the publicly listed SaaS companies. If you had the $30 million in 2021, you could have bought 10,000 units of BVP Cloud Index ETF. If you had $20 million in 2023, because of the lower price, you could buy 15,000 units of BVP Cloud Index. So five years later, what would you rather have? 15,000 units or 10,000 units? Yeah. They're really interesting. Your business is correlated likely with the overall market, right? Correct. So it's very closely correlated. So like public SaaS multiples in particular are directly correlated to private SaaS multiples. So when private SaaS multiples go down, it's partly an, an over, is basically a delayed effect of the public ones coming down. And so when, if you're selling for Beautiful. a lower multiple, then you can buy the public SaaS ETFs at a lower price. And so really, most of the time, you can offset the reduced uh, value that you're getting for your private business because you're putting most of it in the public market anyway. Which again, which is why it's not true. If, you, if your entire proceeds is $5 million and, and you're blowing it all in one go, then you know, you're screwed. And also, it's not true if you're like <laughs> obsessed with real estate and spend all of it, you know, buying real estate. Because then, unless the I don't know that the real estate market is as closely correlated, but certainly for public SaaS, it definitely is. That's a wonderful point. Two more questions for you. So the first is, a lot of founders that exit their business regret doing it. Do you have a take on this and a sense for how people could avoid the situation where they've exited, now they realize how hard it was to grow a business or they don't know what to do with the money now and they don't have, it might as well have been in the business or what is your sense for this 
which is, seems to be a very powerful trend that a lot of founders are like, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I think a lot of the time it's sort of like the grass is greener type thing. I think people forget how stressful it was to have their entire wealth tied into this one thing that could in theory blow up. I think most of the, most of the founders that we've helped through are actually pretty happy with what they did. I think in, in part because like most of the time when we're doing deals, the founders keep working there for like a year or two. So most of the time, the structure of the deals are, are slightly different than probably on the smaller size deals in that like you're typically not selling 100%, getting cash, walking away after two weeks. That just usually doesn't happen. Usually what happens is you're getting paid, let's say 25 million bucks, but you're not getting $25 million in cash. You're probably getting 15, say, and the other 10 might be what's called rolled in equity into the new acquiring entity. So in some cases, what ends up doing is like a third mm. of the equity is actually, it's a tax-free transaction, but it turns into equity of the acquirer or the rolled up company. And you have to keep working there. And in some cases not, but even if you don't work there, like your, like a chunk of your equity, ten, your payout tends to be an equity in the acquiring company. And so a lot of the time what happens is these founders then work there for a year or two. And in some cases, they make more money at what they call, you know, the second bite of the apple than they did the initial transaction. Because now the bigger entity and they grow faster and like they do an IPO or like they do a recap or, or sell to a larger private equity firm. And that's probably why, like, I would say probably only about 20% of the founders that we back are like, yeah, probably shouldn't have sold it. So, so I actually don't see that all that often. And I mean, those people, what they should do if they're lonely yeah. and stuff, they should just put money into tiny suits. Well, there could be another reason, which I'll throw one at you, which is a Jason Cohen concept. The concept of the freedom line, which is having enough money to shelve financial questions for a lifetime. Typically in the SaaS space, that's more typically the outcome. Whereas in a lot of the folks that listen to our show, we're selling for a million or two million. So the question is, yeah. what in 2023 amongst the tech community, what is the consensus number that pe founders think of as the number you need to have to shelve financial questions for a lifetime? I wish there was a specific number there because it's it just honestly, it's all over the place. It's such a weird thing. Like, I personally think if you got five million bucks, you're probably fine. You know, I, I don't know how to you know, like don't blow it all at once. You're probably okay. But I had a conversation like literally this week with a founder and he's got a great business. And like, we're ready to go to market with him. And he was like, I'm thinking maybe I should grow bigger because I don't think this is going to be a life-changing outcome for me. And I was like, dude, this is going to be somewhere between 25 and $35 million. And you don't think that's life-changing? He's like, no. I was like, okay. So <laughs> what, what will be life-changing then? He's like, it's got to be at least 50. I was like, okay. You know, I mean, people are different, I guess. But yeah, I mean, there, there just isn't a good answer to that. I don't think. I think I actually think yeah. the people who like really like regret it, they just like working on the thing, and and I think they like underestimate how hard it is to do it again. I, I think that is true. Like, I think there's some people who like the second they get to some meaningful number, you know, where they're like they get to a millionaire or immediately sell because they're like, great, now I can sell for four. Like they sometimes they regret it. Like, they're like, it's not just not as easy as I thought just to do this again now that I have some more money. I do think that's true. 
But I don't think it's as common as, like I said, that's probably maximum 20% of the founders we, we do would have that kind of regret, I would say. I mean, in part because they're, a lot of the time, they make even more money again two or three years later. Makes total sense. Inar, thanks for coming on the TMBA podcast. We really appreciate it. Of course. It It was wonderful. My joy. Absolutely. Look forward to hanging out in person (laughs) as well. Likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.